and welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, someone that changed a lot of people's lives in a major way, Jesse Michaels of Common Rider, and of course... Operation Ivy. More on that in a second. But first, if you would like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email to turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on various forms of social media at Left for Damien. If you would like to get in touch with the show over Facebook, there's a Facebook page run by my brother and show producer, Tristan Abraham, and you can find that at facebook.com slash turnedoutapunk. If you don't use Facebook and you still want to find that stuff that we post over on the Facebook page and, uh, you know, like cool stuff that gets sent into the show, etc. There is a Tumblr page, and that is turnedoutapunk.tumblr.com. If you would like to support this podcast and you use iTunes, you can subscribe to this thing. You can rate it and write a review, five-star uh, ratings would be great. And uh, if you don't use Facebook and you want to support this show, you can do that by telling all your friends. And there's also other podcasts in the Turned Out of Punk family, including Turned Out of Punk Footnotes, hosted by Chris O'Toole and myself, where we dissect an episode of Turned Out of Punk. And there is also the Mighty Oil and Flowers podcast, hosted by Buddha Blaze and myself. And each week we talk about cannabis from two medical Medicinal cannabis users, I should say, which are Buddha and myself. Speaking of supporting this podcast, this podcast would not be possible without the support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard and said, Damien, don't pay for this anymore to your own pocket. Book whoever you want to book, and we're just going to make it possible for you to do this thing, you know, without having to lose money on it, which is great. You know, I'm not getting rich off this thing, but I'm certainly not losing money anymore. So thank you, Vans, for that. All right, on to today's show. Today on the show, this is a huge one. This is a a really big one. Um, I tell Jesse on this podcast, there are a few bands that have had kind of the impact that his early band Operation Ivy has had on music, you know, specifically punk music, because they are one of those bands. Like, this was the biggest selling record on Lookout Records Ever. You know, and that includes like the Donnas, that includes Green Day, that includes Neurosis, that includes, you know, a, a lot of bands. And this was the band, I think it was even the biggest selling record Mortem Distribution had out, if I remember cor- hearing correctly, back in the day. This is some very old information, but it goes to show you this record is one of those records that, you know, every generation of new punk kids, this is one of the albums that you kind of, you kind of wind up getting as one of your first albums pretty much ever since it came out. So, Je- you know, getting to sit down and talk to Jesse, someone I don't know a ton about because he was reclusive for a number of years. And yeah, this is an awesome episode. I can go on and blather on about this forever, but we're going to be doing that on Turn It Up Punk Footnotes. That's what we do on Turn It Up Punk Footnotes. We blather on about these episodes. I'm going to sit back and let you listen to this one because this is a killer episode. It goes a lot of places, a lot of places I never expected it to go. So everyone, please sit back, relax, and enjoy Jesse Michaels on Turned Out a Punk. Jesse, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Well, as I was just telling you off air, this is a huge thrill for me. You know, obviously a huge fan of Operation Ivy, Common Rider, uh, but also your graphic art. You have done illustration and graphics for some of my favorite 
records of all time. And, uh, yeah, I just can't wait to nerd out with you right now. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to it as well. I'm a big fan of uh, Fucked Up and of, and of Canada. Oh, well, that's great. That's uh, amazing. And Common uh, Rider never played here, right? Um, no, I don't. I don't think. No, I'm my I memory. I don't have the the greatest <laughs> memory. And we went on a couple of these, you know, big tours, uh, mm-hmm. plea for peace, mm-hmm. and the tours went to Canada. But I, I don't feel like we did. Yeah, like I think it would have been something that would have been hopefully on my radar. But if uh, oh wait, actually we did. We Rock Common Rider, um, Classics of Love. Do you know Classics of Love? Yeah. So that band played at the um, the Pooza Fest one year. Oh, okay, yes, okay, Pooza Fest, absolutely in Montreal. So yeah, so um, Classics of Love, which was a band I played in a few years ago, played at Pooza Fest. Okay, so well, uh, unfortunately, never come to Toronto, but one day, one day we'll have you. One day, yeah, and I would love to come to Toronto and actually just move there. Um, <laughs> um, but I guess I got to start this off the way I start them all off, which is how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Uh, yeah. So I actually, I listened to the show and I figured it out because I, I really couldn't have said offhand, but, um, it, it was, uh, and I actually figured out the date. It was in June of, 1978 and the reason i know i was nine years old the reason i know that um is because i first uh, my first encounter with anything involving punk was from mad magazine (laughs) yep and they had a uh, like punk parody and so i actually tracked it down i was like i wonder when that was because i knew that you know i was immediately fascinated and sort of horrified you know Mm mm-hmm um, because it was a sort of uh, you know one of Mad Magazine's things with a uh, Sex Pistols like band that barfed on the audience, and so you know as a kid I was like what is this you know, and uh, and so even though it was kind of gross and they you know I was immediately fascinated by it even then as a nine year old. From then on, I just started sort of like looking for clues, and I've heard. I've heard other people on your show talking about this where they got a, a little hint of it and then they they kind of started looking for anything connected to punk. And um, so that set me off on, uh, you know, it took me a couple of years to actually hear the music. But from that point on, I was I was fascinated with it. Were you seeing media reports about it at the time? Because I, I know there were like, you know, those news stories that were kind of prevalent. Yeah. So, well, I was, I was kind of too much of a little kid for that, but yeah. uh, I, my dad was a writer and, um, kind of a literary guy. So, and we would go to New York city every year. And so, um, he would go to bookstores and whenever I was in a bookstore, I would kind of root around for it, you know, like any signs <laughs> of punk stuff, or maybe, maybe I wasn't looking specifically for that, but I would see it and I'd be fascinated with it. And, at some point, I think I might have, might have been like 10 or 11 or something like that, He, um, I found a book called, um, the book was called The Punk Rock Book, I think. And he bought it for me. 
And so the book had all, it was about English punk, you know, 77 era punk. And it had these, you know, photo spreads of all these English bands. And I think maybe a couple New York bands. Was it Omnibus Press that put it out, do you remember? Uh, I don't know. I could send you a link to the book. Yeah, like I'm fascinated to see which book because I, I think I might even know the same book, but go on, sorry. Yeah, it's a great book and it had, because, I mean, it's just really well put together. It had um, photos and short interviews and, um, you know, lyrics from all the band. That was the cool thing is they included lyrics. So, I, and I was just immediately, once I had that thing, it was sort of over. I was <laughs> really, really into it. Um, you know, and the bands just looked incredible and, and the girls were seemed hot and, you know, they were a little bit scary. It just, it was awesome to me. Yeah. And I was a very obsessive kid. Like before I ever got into punk, I was really, really into comic books. And then I was really into, you know, like horror movies and, you know, um, and so once I got a hold of that, that was just the next thing. Mm-hmm. What, so I guess you're reading these lyrics, but this is before you've actually heard the music. So what did you think it was going to sound like based on the lyrics you're reading at that time? Well, there were some other things that came into play, and I'm not sure like when each thing happened. But uh, So my dad was a college professor, and he would go on these trips, and I would sometimes um, visit him wherever he was. And I'm, at one point, he went to Colorado Springs, and another point, he went to Baltimore, and I would meet his students, and I would sort of like, I would be like Columbo. I'd ask them, like, <laughs> if they were interested in punk, and, you know, usually. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> but awesome. then some of them were. And then, so, at one point, like, one of the things that happened was um, one of the students worked at a college radio station, and I was really just a little kid, and but the guy like let me play records at the radio station, not on, not on air. He put me in the side room and let me just sort of like listen to records. And, um, so that was, you know, and I remembered, I, I listened to a lot of this stuff then, and most of it I didn't like, uh, I just kind of wasn't ready for it, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I like, I like the aesthetic before I actually like the music. But then eventually what happened is, um, I had a, uh, Basically, my mother started dating this guy who had a daughter, and the daughter was really into um, the B-52s. And so that was my entry point, really. Mm-hmm. She had the first B-52s album, and so I played that thing to death. And I still love all their stuff. I still think they're fantastic. But that's what really got me into it. So, yeah, where did you kind of go from there? Because, you know, uh, yeah, B-52s a band that doesn't really get, you know, credit. They were one of the first American DIY bands. They had rock lobster. They put out themselves. Well, yeah, they were an amazing band on many different levels. I mean, they were way ahead of their time in terms of like, um, you know, camp and queer culture Mm -hmm. and, uh, and just in a variety of ways. And also they were just a sick band. Like their rhythm section was hard, you know, um, they're very, just very good. But, um, so, well, I think what happened after that is, um, at some point I met, um, uh, Aaron, Aaron from Crimshine, Aaron Comets, mm-hmm. 
And we had actually known each other as little kids, like literally with five-year-olds. He used to play with the kids across the street. And um, we sort of, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people on your show have said, you, you see, you find some other weird, you know, creepy little kid. <laughs> <laughs> you, you sort of spot each other, <laughs> you know, and so there's this weird kind of like squaring off thing, like, so what kind of music do you listen to or whatever? Anyway, and, and he was already really plugged in because he had an older brother who was into all this shit. So by that time, I think it was like, you know, 11 or 12 or something. But I went over to his house and he had the plug. He had all the, um, <laughs> you know, he had like the Ramones. And at that time, uh, there was this big sensational thing happening with the L.A., you know, decline of Western civilization, bands like Fear and Black Flag and, and all that stuff. And he had some of those records, and that's where I really sort of took off. And he also had Devo, love Devo. And uh, so that's where I really first heard this stuff, and at, that's the point at which I started actually buying records, you know, getting into it. And, I mean, it, that stuff was the media because it was, you know, the, this big sensational thing, and it was violent and scary, and everybody was freaking out. Um, and the movie had come out, and so... Aaron had some of that stuff and I listened to that and you know, it, it's like, there's all these things that happen and I don't know how much of it is actually interesting or relevant. And, uh, you know, li trying to find stations on college radio that you could barely hear and, and hearing snippets of songs through that and so on. Well, no, I believe me, this is all completely interesting. This is the bread and butter of this show. Um, because like, I think it's, it's awesome. Like, but what, cause you've mentioned those records you were listening to at that college station, not agreeing with you at the time. What was the first band that you heard that you think like really agree with you other than the B-52s when you're starting to hear a little bit more of this aggressive stuff with Aaron? Uh, well, okay. So basically I ended up loving all of it. It's just that it took a couple listens to kind of get it. Mm -hmm. So I like the B-52s immediately. And then I liked Devo immediately. Basically stuff that was weird and funny and quirky, kind of, I could, as a little kid, I could get a handle on. But then, you know, I also ended up loving the Ramones and Black Flag and all that. I just had to kind of listen to it a couple times. Then I would get into it. But like mm -hmm. sitting there in the, I remember in the, um, in the radio station, I played the Sex Pistols and I was like, oh, this is kind of boring. You know, it just sounded sludgy and weird to me. <laughs> But then later, I I loved it. It's weird when you're a kid. Like the the quirkier bands are the ones that kind of agree with you first. You know, it's almost like the the more aggressive bands. And and Decline of Western Civilization definitely paints that picture of, you know, it's not like they're fun featuring the Dickies or they're featuring, uh, you know, uh, some of the more quirky bands that are going on. Other than Catholic Discipline, I guess. Like everything's pretty hardcore in that movie. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, my doorway was definitely, you know, what you would loosely call new wave. I liked yeah. Blondie and the B-52s and Devo first, and then I got into the, they were the gateway drug, then I got into the harder stuff. <laughs> and there was all these, so these are just, these are just some of the things, there's just all these little things because, um, and I think other people on your show have talked about this, but I had this kind of rabid you know, curiosity and fascination. And there was a long period where I didn't really have that much access to this stuff because I had no money mm -hmm. and no 
transportation. So I wasn't like going out, you know, just buying shit. But there was a couple things like, you know, once I started hanging out with Aaron, Aaron was a real like punk rock go-getter. You know, I was sort of like this, this kid, this, you know, careful, quiet detective. He was out there just chasing shit down and running around town and buying stuff. So we, we would go out and, and go on these missions where we would just sort of look, you know, wander around Albany, which at that time was an incredibly boring and kind of quaint neighborhood, just looking for punk stuff. <laughs> we'd find a gra- graffiti, you know, and like study it for a while. Like he'd take me, we'd go on a walk to see where someone had written the Ramones somewhere. You know? <laughs> so, and then eventually we made it up to, you know, Telegraph Avenue. He'd probably been there before, but that's, that's where all the records were and we'd go listen to records up there and, and uh, you know, then it, it all kind of, you know, I heard more stuff. What was your first encounter with kind of like, uh, I guess the local scene, like, I guess, was it going to a show or was it finding like a local record first? Well, I remember, you know, as a kid, uh, again, hanging out with Aaron, we would kind of find all the weird little kids that were into punk. Mm-hmm. So we would go on these missions on the bus, you know, and, oh, there's this kid over in El Cerrito, and it, it would always be just some weird kid with two records, and we had a different two records. And I remember one of these missions, we found um, Dave Edwardson from Neurosis. Later, he would be in Neurosis, but we sort of, and he had another friend named Dylan Enders, who was another punk musician kid, and we would sort of check out his records. <laughs> You know, it's just so weird, <laughs> but because um, all of us were super antisocial, you know. Yeah. But we find each other, so we found Dave, and then later we found um, Noah from Christ on Parade, and all these people became like friends. They yeah. became our little gang, you know. And uh, so, yeah, we'd sort of dig people. Oh, what was the first encounter? Well, so we'd find these punk kids. We'd see the older punks around who were just sort of like gods you know yeah and then um but my first like real show there was a show called um the eastern front which was at an outdoor park in um in emeryville and it was a big outdoor show it was actually incredible lineup and i saw these bands and so that was the first time i you know saw live hardcore music and had a real experience with the local scene. It's the first time I ever saw, you know, a pit and all that stuff. Wow. And that's like, that's the infamous Live at the Eastern Front compilation that you kind of immortalized that show, right? Uh, well, yes. Um, yeah. And it there were several of them. So I'm not, I don't remember which uh, show that one covers, but the lineup was ridiculous. It was like DOA... Flipper, uh, the fix. Oh my Lude, god! Oh, <laughs> uh, seven seconds. As I think they played as a three piece. Um, sick pleasure. I mean, it was crazy. And I might be conflating two versions of the show, but I was at both of them. But the first one was really insane. I mean, DOA played, and they were fucking amazing. Hats off to to your boys. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they were just so so great. And uh, Flipper were were mind blowing. I mean, every I think Husker Du played actually. That's so amazing. It's it a hell of a gig, and it was the first time I'd ever seen a pit. And uh, you know, everybody was doing this LA style, 
thrashing. They called it back there them with the, um, you know, they all had their uh, flannel shirts tied around their waist like the circle jerks guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I saw these guys, and I was just a little kid. I was watching this. I was like, wow, this is actually the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> As a 12-year-old, I was just like, oh, my God, this is so incredibly stupid. But then, you know, at the same time, I was sort of fascinated with it. Yeah, that's like, and what a show. Holy God. Later, I had the, you know, the the shirt tied around my waist, and I was right in there with them. (laughs) Exactly. I think it's that, like, really that show, like what you mentioned there with Fix, DOA, Husker Du, and like all those bands being on it, like that's that's that might be the one of the greatest hardcore bills ever. Well, there was a, there was some. I mean, if you just look at flyers back then, you see these shows. It's like, you know, like negative approach, bad posture. You yeah. know, they're fucking just crazy. People just didn't know how good they had it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was a good one. And I'm actually, you know, the thing about my history and i say this without being like falsely self-effacing is i missed a lot more shows than i went to because i i never really had transportation i wasn't the kid that was like running away from home you know i was a fairly uh well-behaved kids in in some ways so <laughs> i'm glad i i caught that one because i i really missed i never saw black flag there's a lot of bands that i saw like one song of because i had to be home by midnight you <laughs> yeah. know <laughs> oh, I can relate. Uh, I can relate. Uh, but still, like, to see Sick Pleasure at the age of 12, that is a life-altering experience that few of us get to achieve. Well, yeah. And at the time, I, I was like, this guy is fucking gross. <laughs> and I didn't like – I was very judgmental. But I did love Flipper. I had already heard about Flipper. You know, I read about them in fanzines because we had what were called, they call them zines now, but back then they called them fanzines. So mm-hmm. we had, you know, um, these local fanzines. Aaron was already in, into the zine game. And uh, so I'd already heard about Flipper and how they were, people always dis- describe them in, in almost like cultish, like they, like supernatural terms. Like they were just this apocalyptic kind of anti, anti rock band, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's really true. They had this, incredibly dark and powerful stage presence they're amazing and very extremely nihilistic they were really good and the fix actually completely blew my fucking mind they were so good it's funny too because like i was just i I just jerry a was just on the podcast and he was talking about that fix tour and that that's the infamous tour when they went out west and then later pig champion followed that tour to try and get copies of the vengeance seven inch but like that's one of the rare outings they ever made outside of, you know, there's, they're kind of like Midwest stomping ground. Yeah. And they, well, yeah, they were one. of. I mean, that's the thing about hardcore bands. I think even still today with the neo hardcore bands that sound like eighties bands, they also do do that thing where they play, you know, for like 13 months and then it's over. <laughs> and then it's over. Yeah. That's all you get. <laughs> they put out one, one treasured EP. <laughs> And that's it. And then someone dies or something. But, uh, yeah, they were fantastic. The singer um, had two microphones. That's what I remembered about it. <laughs> he he, like grabbed the the guitar player's microphone and he was using two mics. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. And then the other thing is, you know, shows back then 
were often extremely violent mm-hmm. and that one was no exception like someone um what was i think wasted youth played anyway some band came out and like the singer was trying to do a leaving thing so um someone picked up a bottle and threw it at the drummer or just threw it probably at the band randomly, but it cracked the drummer in the head. And so that was it for them. He had to go to the hospital. Like it split his oh head open. God. That kind of shit was not that uncommon. And actually, I don't know if I'll get in trouble for saying this, but this is a, you talk about nerding out, but the guy who threw the bottle at the drummer for, for wasted youth was the guy stage diving on the back of the All's Quiet on the Western Front compilation <laughs> with the big circle A on his on his shirt. At least that's the rumor. I think the but statue that was the guy who threw the bottle that that took out wasted youth. And he wasn't like it wasn't like a heroic, like anti homophobic gesture. It yeah. was more like Fuck LA <laughs> Yeah, no, I think it was uh, – well, you hear the stories, right? Like it, it, the West Coast is where hardcore became kind of militant and that's where you have like – like you said, the rise of that Circle Jerks uh, skanking guy and you have the rise of the you know the LA punk gangs and all that kind of stuff that have been much fabled at this point almost. Yeah, the LA punk gangs was some crazy agit and I would just read about that. That's another thing um, – that was a big part of of my experience of early punk is I didn't always have access. I had like eight records. I'd play them over and over again or whatever. But I, I couldn't always get out shows. But I would get these feelings like flip side, you know. And I would read that shit cover to cover. Like every fucking word, every weird ad, you know, every tedious letter. And um, it was harder to do with Maxim Rock and Roll because... Maximum Rock and Roll was just so boring that I couldn't even do it, no matter how fascinated I was. <laughs> Flipside was actually interesting, and they talk about all these gangs, and it just sounded gnarly. But yeah. we had gangs in the Bay Area, but it would be like twelve people. They would be scary, you know, but but nothing like you know, play death squad and the suicidal kids and all that stuff. Yeah, like you know, obviously not a gang, um, but yeah, you know, you hear about. You know, like the the stories about the violence that shows that kind of, you know, I guess like eventually what you guys kind of do, your scene that you kind of eventually become part of is, is almost a reaction to in in some ways. Yeah, I would say that's true. I mean, there was a thing where the shows were really violent. And at first it was the punks. There were certain punks that were super violent. And you would just see these these really ugly scenes. I mean, I have stories about it, you know, shows where some guy, some guy with long hair would make the mistake of the pen and he would just be like being, being chased down the street by people blood streaming down his face. That's something that actually happened. And, uh, you know, there's many more stories like that. Just gnarly. They weren't even fights. It was always just like a bunch of people beating the shit at, out of one person. And so it sucked. You know, eventually, yeah, I think some of the goofiness of Gilman, although, you know, most of my kind of light punk life happened before Gilman, but mm-hmm. some of the goofiness and lightness of that was definitely a reaction to the ultra serious and ultra macho aspects of the hardcore scene. Um, and then 
of course, after, so at first it was all these gnarly punks and then the skinheads showed up and all the tough guy punks suddenly disappeared. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's just kind of, okay, let's, we see how tough you really are. As long as it's five on one, they're super tough. But it, as soon as there's any opposition, they're all like, you know, go back to the landscaping. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, earlier on, you mentioned that sort of first crop of kids that you guys came across and you met on your punk adventures. Uh-huh. It's yeah. amazing how different the bands you guys would all wind up playing in are, but yet you guys were all kind of, you know, at the same scene at some point. Yeah. Uh, well, so, I mean, yes, totally. That's that's definitely true. And like I said, Aram was just, I mean, I got to hand it to the guy. I have always been kind of shy, more of an introvert. And Aaron, you know, Aaron's a writer. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's he spends a lot of time alone. But he also, from the gate, was just out there, like on the town, running all over the place with these fake bus transfers, you know, and uh, <laughs> and just meeting people and finding all these. He knew about every fucking band that no one cared about, but we thought were like gods, you know, and he put out these little tape compilations of these bands. All this stuff is in the, there's a Gilman Street documentary that was, kind of funded and, and produced by Green Day that, that covers a lot of this stuff. So I won't repeat too much of it. But anyway, so we would run around town and, and yeah, he he kind of orchestrated that. But it's true that there was um, a lot of people that formed different types of bands. Yeah, like if you look at well, you look at that that lookout, you know, <clears throat> first run of seven inches, it's like, you know, Plaid Retina does not sound anything like you guys who sound nothing like Neurosis, who sound nothing like Crimp Shrine. Like it's a it's obviously a scene that had, you know, it's not like when you listen to that D.C. sound, you know, or even that Detroit sound. Like I love all those bands and I don't think Negative Approach and The Fix sound alike, but they're they're definitely approaching punk from a very similar kind of trajectory. Yeah. So, I mean, the thing about that first um, Gilman Street compilation is um, it's a lot of those bands just didn't even know each other. Like they were kind of <laughs> their own orbits and, and they were brought together by Gilman street. Cause, because for the first time there was a venue, a consistent place to play. Mm-hmm. So a lot of those bands we had kind of heard of, but I definitely, you know, we were sort of in different worlds mm-hmm. and Gilman street brought them together. So I think that's why there's kind of different sounds as opposed to somewhere you know, like DC where everybody was playing at the nine thirty club and kind of, kind of knew each other. Yeah. That makes sense. Where did you kind of like, you know, obviously you, you go to this incredibly epic first show, but then you said you kind of had problems getting out as most kids do to kind of see a lot of these other shows that are happening. What were some of the other shows though, that you did make it out to that stand out to you? Um, let's see. Well, I did get to some, I mean, I missed a lot of shows, but I also saw a lot of great shows um, I saw Minor Threat, and that was an epic show because it was uh, Minor Threat, MDC, who had just moved from Texas. It was DRI's first show in the Bay Area after moving from Texas. Yeah. Um, There's a couple other bands. I don't remember who else played. But so that was that was a great show and very gnarly. And uh, Minor Threat, you know, they were so fucking great that all the kind of, like, you know, like the fuck-ups – fuck ups people that who were sort of the ultra tough San Francisco people, all the people were there, but 
everybody loved Minor Threat so much that everybody just kind of got along and they would give Ian shit about not drinking and all that stuff. But it was it was fun. Um, <laughs> so that was one. And then when I was, um, you know, in my early teenage years, I actually moved from the Bay Area to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, um, because I was fucking up in school and I had to kind of do something different. Um, I'm no dummy, but I, I just never did well in high school. And so that caused a lot of kind of trouble in my life as a kid. But I ended up in Pittsburgh where my mother lived and I saw a bunch of shows out there as well. Oh, it was it like Necrocedia or what kind of bands were playing at that time? Or like uh, Half-Life, I guess? Yeah, Half- Half-Life would play every show. <laughs> 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 and they were great. And, you know, I, the guy in Half-Life, Mike Lavelle, he's a, he's a great guy. And he's sort of a punk rock maestro. And mm-hmm. so he, he would sort of orchestrate a lot of stuff. And uh, anyway, so, yeah, they would play. But. I mean, some of the shows I saw out there were like um, Agnostic Front. Uh, I'm pretty sure I saw SSD, but it was in the How We Rock period. Okay, yeah. So, but I actually still, I like that record, but it wasn't the classic period. Yeah. Um, a bunch of bands, Government Issue, a lot of DC bands came through there. Um, Scream. Uh, I, I don't remember all of them, but I, I saw quite a few shows out there. Uh, you Earlier on, you mentioned the fuck-ups. Like, yeah, there's infamous stories about that band, and, you know, they're fairly fairly kind of storied at this point. But what were your experiences with them? Did you kind of, like, see them at shows, or did you ever see them play? Well, I never saw the fuck-ups. I mean, I wouldn't go to a fuck-up show. Their reputation, they were just notorious, you know. Yeah. Uh, my friends did, and... I had some of my punk friends like Noah, um, again, from Christ on Parade. He was still a very close friend. Great guy. Um, He had an older sister and she would go to all those crazy shows because she was involved with this crew of girls um, called DMR. And DMR was a gang in Berkeley that was kind of just this gnarly girl gang. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And like it wasn't cute. Like they, they would fuck people up. You often dudes, but also girls, like it wasn't, you know, it was, they were fucking scary, but they're also, you know, I think they, they came from pretty crazy backgrounds and they've sort of, you know, they're all actually really cool people. And I'm friends with some of them still, but anyway, back then I barely knew them, but, um, Noah's sister would go to kind of the sketchier shows and, and I would hear stories about those people in the scene and the SF skins was like the kind of really fucked up, um, skinhead gang at that time. Uh, yeah. So a lot of shit went down and you would hear about people getting stabbed and, and people getting raped and, and other stuff. But a lot of that stuff, I kind of, you know, I caught a couple of those shows, but I wasn't like going to the Mab every week again because I just, I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. But I, I probably would have if I had uh, if I had wheels. Did you 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 because you had that band with Aaron? That was your first band. Was that before or after you moved to Pittsburgh? Um, let's see. Uh, that was before I moved to Pittsburgh. So that band was just we had um, you know a tape recorder mm-hmm. and a guitar with two strings <laughs> and like a practice pad, and we made a band out of that. We were really really into flipper 
Oh, and wow. <laughs> and so that band was super influenced by Flipper. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, so that was that was when I was really just, I think, 12 or 13 when we did that. Did you guys record? So you guys recorded that? Yeah, we recorded a couple songs that are out there somewhere. Um, and then Jeff Ott from Crimshrine later joined us, which is kind of another funny story because sometimes if we couldn't find a punk kid, we would make one. <laughs> <laughs> we saw, we saw, I was in junior high school and I saw Jeff um, and Jeff was this kid and he just looked so cool to me, but he wasn't at all punk. He had long red hair. Yeah. And he literally, this is not an exaggeration. He had a different journey t-shirt for every day of the week. <laughs> So obviously that isn't punk, but that level of obsessiveness, yeah. we immediately knew he had potential, you know? <laughs> so, so me and Aaron kind of like basically took him hostage and sort of brainwashed him. <laughs> and uh, he, he might have a different version of this story, but I feel like we kind of like made him punk and then made him join our band. And then, which I eventually sort of, you know, I had to leave slash got kicked out of, uh, and then they went on to form Crimshine. Oh, so that actually, that is, they just kept going and that became Crimshine. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. So it was the three of us. And then once I left, I kind of, I had to move, but I sort of, I probably would have been um, kicked out anyway, to be honest, because I got really into smoking weed. Okay. And basically, I had a lot of problems with drugs and alcohol, and I just wasn't kind of all there for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know if I would have made it in that band. But anyway, they kept going, and they eventually, like Aaron, got some real drums, and they eventually became Crimshrine. And, like, you eventually go straight edge. Or were you straight edge or no? Never. Well, I I always had a super addictive personality, and so I was always flipping back and forth between sort of like, you know, um, getting high and drinking and stuff and trying to control it and, and not doing it very well. Okay. And, and and kind of squaring it off. So a lot of times I was not doing anything, but a lot of times I was I was either, you know, just fucked up or doing this very kind of like hyper managed version of of you know, trying to be a casual drinker. I eventually, these days I have 10 years, you know, clean and sober. I don't fuck around anymore. I, I eventually came to the realization that it's just, it doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. When, when you went to Pittsburgh, did you try and do any projects there musically or was it just kind of trying to, you know, get, get everything back on track? Uh, yeah. Well, so in Pittsburgh, I was, you know, plunged into high school and it sucked because I was from Berkeley. I was weird in Berkeley, you know, <laughs> and Pittsburgh, <laughs> In the 80s, it was a real working class town. And even among towns like Cleveland and so on, Pittsburgh was not the most advanced. I've seen Deer Hunter. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. So, well, it was in a way. That's a whole nother story. There was this this whole scene that was actually incredible that no one knows about in the early 80s in Pittsburgh that just was not really on the radar. But um, there was all these bands like the five and like, uh, car sick, uh, car sickness. Yeah. Car sickness, the five, the cardboards. Yeah. Um, there's a shitload of bands, but you're right. And- it is like a really arty bend to all that stuff that was coming out of there. You're right. So, and uh, Warhol's from there too. Right. So I guess 
Yeah, so there was that, but it was just kind of like the mainstream in Pittsburgh. Like when you went out on missions trying to find punk stuff, you really wouldn't come up with anything. (laughs) (laughs) Except I would see these old, ancient, like decaying flyers for car sickness. I was like, that's that's something. (laughs) But anyway, so I went out there and, you know, it took a while and I was kind of back and forth between Pittsburgh and the Bay Area. But eventually I found some kids and, you know, once I got to high school, I found um, some punk kids and some metal kids. One one of whom actually my kind of my best friend was is now the singer for uh, Me First and the Gimme Gimmies. Oh, wow. Spike? Spike. Yeah. yeah so Spike, <laughs> Spike was like one of my main homeboys. And this guy named Spar, who's like a, a metal guy, he's still a metal guy. And uh, so... And eventually I, I got in some bands out there. I got in a hardcore band called uh, Outlash. And we were sort of, at that time, crossover was really big. So we were kind of like metal hardcore. You know, we sounded like like the accused or something like that. Oh, that's awesome. Did you guys yeah. record? Uh, there's one boombox demo, which is, I mean, you can barely hear what's going on. I think it might be on YouTube. Oh, that's awesome. Somewhere. And then later I became the drummer for a metal band because i was also um at that time you know thrash metal was becoming a thing and and uh so i was in a metal band but it that didn't last too long because i was just a terrible drummer it wasn't doom watch was it or something no doom watch were friends of this band this band was called necropolis oh you got there's records right necropolis records uh well i do you mean the band did eventually make records, I believe. Yes. Oh, that's great! You were in that band. <laughs> yeah, but there might be more than one. That's, but still, like, even if I, I think I'm thinking of the one from Pittsburgh. I, I'll, I'll fix this in the intro. But either way, to hear you talk about car sickness and Necropolis, this is not where I thought this would be going, Jesse. This is awesome. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, the Pittsburgh thing was a whole thing. I mean, it's funny because I actually didn't think I would have that much to say, and now I it, I can't shut up. But Do, this like, is believe me, don't shut up, please, don't shut up. <laughs> well, I mean, every aspect of this because again, the whole thing, the locus of all this stuff is this rabid fascination. Where he, even if there's barely anything, every time you get you know a fanzine or whatever, it was just a different world before the internet. And I hate to date myself by saying that or or do like a oh it was better than i'm not doing that mm-hmm. but it, it just was a totally different experience because i remember like i i found a fanzine in pittsburgh called suburban angst which was a great i think it was called suburban angst i'm pretty sure anyway it was a great fucking zine and back then you would write people letters you know and they'd write you back within a week because everybody was so kind of devoted and, uh, and, and it was handwritten and like in tiny letters. And I read every letter of that thing, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, and eventually I did make it out to shows, but yeah, so I played in this band Necropolis and I really tried my best, but I'm just, <laughs> I wasn't a great drummer and actually related to this, as long as you're encouraging me to just go off, uh, my first band, I was a drummer in, in, um, the Bay area and it was a band call or my first real band besides so the thing i did with aaron and the tape recorder was called um sag Mm -hmm. which stood for anything we had a bunch of different names for that but then i got my first quote-unquote real band was this band called aggressor which again was kind of a metal crossover thing and that was with um 
Dave Edwards from, from Neurosis and Noah from Christ on Parade. Whoa, and did that record? I think we recorded one song on a tape. Oh, um, so sick. But uh, so we would sit around and basically take acid <laughs> and, and like listen to the first, you know, Black Sabbath record 18 times in a row. <laughs> and write this weird music. And, um, you know, it was like crossover punk. But a lot of the riffs from that band uh, ended up on like the first Christ on Parade record and the first Neurosis record. Oh my gosh, that's so awesome. No, so please. on the Pain of Mind record, there are several uh, aggressor riffs. <laughs> that is awesome to hear. That's one of my favorite records ever. And it's I think, an unbelievable record. So they were so fucking good. People just don't even realize how good they were. Yeah, like, I, I, I you know, like, obviously, I got to experience Neurosis much in a much different stage in their career when I first saw them. And it's, you know, it's amazing and it's powerful, but then you read these stories about these early shows and it just seems like, Oh, this is a completely different animal back then. Yeah, they were great. And they, uh, one thing I will say for neurosis is I don't know if you had this experience or, but one thing I remember about these early, um, hardcore shows is the sound was often so bad and so loud that basically you couldn't hear a fucking note, you know? <laughs> so you go, go see Neurosis. And it, it was totally unintelligible, but it just really didn't matter. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, if you had the demo tape, you kind of knew what they were doing, and it was great. But <laughs> a lot of times it's just these people with, like, crate amps, you know, turned up to 11. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, so fucking bad. When I got it's to so see great. them, they yeah. When I by the time I got to see them, they had cleaned up the sound, and it was like it was, I think, a, a different experience by then. It was an, it was assaulting, but not necessarily in a pummeling kind of way. Well, yeah. Eventually, they got better equipment, then you could hear them. True, very true. Um, so, yeah, so when when you kind of like leave Pittsburgh, um, and, and you come back to the Bay Area. Were were you kind of like more of a metal kid at this point, or are you just still like looking for any traces of this kind of culture? Uh, well, basically, I mean, so we were really into punk, and punk was always, always the main thing. Mm -hmm. But you know, and and none of us ever listened to like Judas Priest or anything like that. But the thing was, you know, we heard Venom, and we're like, oh, this is like punk, yeah. Except they're metal and really fucking creepy, you know, <laughs> which was kind of cool. Uh, and so Venom and then Slayer showed up and I remember it was Dave Edwardson was really, he's the guy from Neurosis who I was friends with and who we had a little band with. Um, but he's the one who kind of like turned me on to Metallica. And when that first record came out, he's like, yeah, it's metal, but it's like punk. And then, you know, the Slayer record came out and there was this huge, a lot of thrash metal really started in the Bay area mm -hmm. with Exodus and the possessed and stuff like that. So we would actually go to those shows and we would, it was kind of fucked up because we, in the same way that anyone showing up with long hair would get beat up at a punk show. A lot of times it, it you didn't really want to be at a metal show with short hair and we all had short hair, but the thing is we were so little that we kind of got away with it because <laughs> we were just kids, you know, teenagers. Yeah. So, but a couple times, like, it was a little sketchy. Like I was wondering if my, if I was about to get my ass kicked more than once at those shows, but yeah, we would go see, um, you know, Exodus and Slayer and the possessed and all those bands because they actually played at the same venue, 
um, the same Bay Area, East Bay venue that a lot of the punk bands played in, which was uh, Ruthie's Inn. Were there any bands that kind of could exist in both scenes, like Attitude Adjustment, or like I guess probably not them, but any bands that were like thrashy enough that they, you know, or crossover enough that they were in both worlds? Uh, yeah, eventually it got kind of more integrated. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, at at first, and and I'm I might be exaggerating a little bit. Like I'm sure there was punk people and metal people that that intermixed. You know, a lot of the metal people had, um, you know, like GBH back patches and stuff. So there was already that that hybrid happening. Uh, and Discharge, of course, everybody loves Discharge. So, mm-hmm. uh, but it was definitely sort of separate things in the beginning. And I think gradually um, it, it really intermixed. And Attitude Adjustment is a perfect example because they had like metal, you know, total died in the wool metal guys. And then they had some guys, I think, from uh, Verbal Abuse or something like that. So Yeah, yeah. How did you uh, wind up doing the art for the Unipride Seven Inch? Were you like a uh, rabid Lassie kind of fan, or or like around those guys? I should say friend. Well, we Operation Ivy just played with them all the time. Oh yeah, I guess it would have been and, the same uh, time. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, and like one of those guys, the bass player, used to roadie for us a lot. Um, Tim? Yeah, not Tim. Oh fuck, I can't remember his name. Okay. And, uh, um. Chuck, maybe. Anyway, I, I forget his fucking name. Anyway, he's the guy that went on to play in Screw Thirty Two. Okay, crazy. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so anyway, you know, we would hang out with them, and they were just homies. We loved those guys. We played shows with them all the time, mm-hmm. and uh, they're really cool guys. I didn't understand the East Coast hardcore thing they were doing, but I was just <laughs> <laughs> like, "This is weird, whatever." But they're fucking great guys, <laughs> and they're fun to watch. They were super jumpy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. And then he just asked me if I would do it. And I was like, sure. Why not? Cause I, I liked, you know, I tried to do whatever I could in terms of making record cover art. Yeah. Cause I you... had kind of an instinct like this is, if I do this, it's going to be around forever, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. which and, is just a cool thing. And you kind of like you, you are like, you know, one of those people that define that aesthetic too, because of all the covers you did at that time. Cause you did a lot or quite a few, you did that first Neurosis single too, right? Uh, well, the back so of it, I didn't do as much as I would have liked to mainly cause I just had a, t- a terrible, again, I'm not being like falsely modest. I just had the worst procrastination problem. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I would get projects and just never do it. I, I still struggle with that today, although I managed to get shit done, but like I did, um, I did the back of the first Christ on parade record. I did all the filth art, um, which is funny because I always I never thought that filth would would be popular because it just seemed too like from knowing those I actually knew and lived with the guys from filth mm-hmm. and to me they were the most ridiculous people on the planet <laughs> in in the best way I love them to death but they're just like very silly people because all we would do is drink and be ridiculous but anyway so I made all that art just out of pure love for them and then uh, it turned out that Jake was actually an amazing singer and they kind of became a thing, you know. <laughs> but uh, so anyway, uh, Christ on Parade, I did something for Neurosis. I don't remember what I did. Um, I did the Unit Pride, Filth, a couple anthologies, Operation Ivy. I did the first Green Day record cover, which is not very good, but I did it. And uh, a couple other things I can't remember. So it wasn't that much. I wasn't like Pusshead. West or anything. No, no. 
Well, I guess Pusset ultimately became Pusset West, true, right? Oh yeah, he went west. Yeah, he went west. So, <laughs> uh, but no, but you, but still, like the stuff you mentioned, it's like it's amazing. Like you talked about that GBH back patch being on all the metal dudes' backs. It's like that filth patch is on many a kid's back right now. <laughs> so funny. Yeah, my art is like scattered, and I say this without ego. I'm, I'm say, talking about the irony of it. It's my art is like scattered across the backs of like homeless people with dogs around the world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like so, so many traveler kids have that. Yeah. Know? Oh, absolutely. That patch is is a staple of of you know for for generations. You know, at this point, and it's like. I don't even like, you know, with this, this you know, I, I didn't even know Unipride 7 Inch was drawn by you until way after the fact. Like, I didn't connect the dots or like the neurosis stuff or the Phil stuff. It's like, I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. It's, it's you know, that scene that kind of comes together, you said, through the Gilman. It's just so many kind of cool, different ideas and different takes on this genre. Yeah. And it's so funny because so much of my experience with this stuff is I mean I did all kinds of like the same stuff in Pittsburgh, you know, mm-hmm. but no one gives a shit about it, and it never really amounted to anything in terms of a broader public, you know, whatever. But my experience of it was the same. Like I never had any clue that that like the Op Ivy record would sell even a thousand copies at that time. Punk records didn't. The only bands that were big were like the dead Kennedys, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or like who's who weren't even, you know, to us weren't even punk anymore. We, we liked them, but they weren't, you know, they were doing something different. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, it was. And so the fact that people even know about that shit now is quite, uh, you know, a weird twist of fate because at that time I just never thought anybody would care about any of it. Did you do arts for uh, any art for bands when you were in Pittsburgh? <clears throat> um, not so much, not really. I mean, Pittsburgh, so in Pittsburgh, I found these kids in high school and we went to shows, but Pittsburgh was very, there was like these older people and they all dressed uh, really, you know, punk, which I couldn't really get away with because in Pittsburgh, if you dressed that way, you would pretty much get beat up. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so you had to sort of like hide it on your clothes. Yeah. But uh, like, so anyway, but they, so we weren't really involved with, with the cool kids. We probably could have been, but you know, again, it's like we could barely get to shows. So, so I wasn't really involved with the scene, although I liked all those bands and I, I, I know a lot of those people now and they're all, they're all super cool people. So when did you first hear ska music in, in some form, like, like, you know, the second wave British stuff or even any American bands or Jamaican obviously too. Uh, well, that's that's a whole nother story. Um, so in Berkeley, there was this place called the UC Theater, and they did a different. You know, Berkeley was a real hub of every kind of weird culture, just from you know the throw the holdover from the hippie days. Mm-hmm. So, you know, anything bohemian or eclectic or weird was kind of treasured in Berkeley. And so there's this movie theater, and they showed a different movie every night. And a lot of times it would be foreign films or like R. Crumb cartoons or just something weird. And, uh, you know, a lot of cine- cinephile shit, you know, to have like a Satyat Ray movie or, mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, what an awesome stuff. theater. Yeah, it was an amazing. It was actually an amazing theater. Uh, anyway, so one of the things they would do is they would, you know, once or twice a year, they would show like some kind of punk or mod or ska movie. And so... 
you know, Pitt, Berkeley had this early ska scene, early for the U.S. Um, I think, uh, you know, this band, The Uptones, played in Berkeley, and they're one of the, the first American ska bands, two-tone ska. And, um, you know, they showed the movie Dance Craze at the UC Theater, and all the mods showed up with their scooters. And it was actually fucking amazing because they mm. played the movie and everybody starts screaming from the for them to turn it up so they cranked the, <laughs> the movie up so it was distorting and the speakers and everybody was literally it was like a gig everybody was dancing in the aisles oh that's and, awesome uh, uh it sounds like I, i'm romanticizing it but it was really <laughs> it was pretty wild and that moment i think really kind of won me over to scott because i saw that it was basically like punk energetically mm-hmm so it was this odd thing that kids were into that was, you know, rebellious and it, in fact even had overt political lyrics and some of this stuff. And then uh, later I saw the Uptones and the Uptones, people used to stage dive at the Uptones show. So again, it was a thing like I might not have had the access point except I could go, oh, this is like punk, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when did you kind of you like you moved back to San Francisco and is it do you, or sorry, Bay Area? Do you immediately form Operation Ivy or is there like a period before that? Well, um, when I got back to the Bay Area, I think I was like seventeen, maybe just turned seventeen, and for oh, maybe sixteen, I don't know. But for about a year, I was basically like the Crimshrine groupie, like. <laughs> I would go with them to every show and sort of hang out with them. And I love them. I love yeah. Crimshine. And Tim Armstrong, um, who was a veteran of a local kind of ska rock band called Basic Radio, um, was also, he also loved Crimshine. And we all knew each other, you know, just from around and mainly through Aaron. Aaron was just like such the social hub. Um, and uh, yeah, so we we met, you know, because we both were probably at a, actually, yeah, I, I remember we had met before as little kids, but the first time we really kind of connected was actually at a Crimshrine show in a backyard party. That band is so good, Crimshrine. Like I, you know, didn't get to experience them uh, live, but I I love those singles so much, and they obviously the LP as well. But man. yeah, I love I loved Crimshrine and. They're now putting out an anthology, which is going to have everything on it if it isn't already out. But um, one of the things that was so great about Crimshine is like the way that the black metal people talk about true cult bands Mm -hmm. that are just super obscure and have absolutely no pretensions. Like they don't care what anyone thinks about them and they're just doing it for pure love of the music that, uh, you know, obviously Crimshine wasn't black metal, but that that kind of ethic was really alive in what they did. I mean, they were barely, their equipment was just barely pieced together and often falling apart mid-show. But they were just so good and, and so sincere um, that they were like our band. They were like the band for the kids that weren't, you know, quite cool enough to be hanging out with the older bands, you know, like Fang or whatever. Mm-hmm. But they were, like, they were like our guys. That's awesome. True cult punk. Yeah. <laughs> True cult garage punk. And to his credit, when I came back, so I told you earlier, Jeff, when we met him, he had eight journey shirts Yeah, and kind of, you know, like did this hostile takeover of his life. <laughs> but when I came back to his, <laughs> they practiced in his house in his parents' basement. And I looked at his record collection and it was, it was all journey records. <laughs> <laughs> and there was, it was like all journey and one George Thorogood record. That was like, it. <laughs> 
Well, that explains like some vocal approaches on some 15 records to me in a way that I never understood before. Yeah, and his Crimshine vocals are very George Thorogood. Yeah. And actually, a lot of his guitar shreds are very, um, you know, Neil Sean. Is that the guy's name? The guy from Journey, whatever his name is. Uh, uh, you, you stumped me on Journey, unfortunately. But uh, but that's awesome <laughs> to know that, that it was it was true cult Journey when it came to Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Um, as far as like, you know, when you kind of come back to the scene, like, you know, Pittsburgh, completely different scene, smaller, what was it like, um, versus when you had left in the Bay area? Well, you know, I always say this and I, I don't want to be like Debbie Downer, but it, it's kind of like, I was so fucking unhappy as a kid that it almost, it was almost all the same. Like mm-hmm. my experience of life just always was not that great. That being said, Berkeley, it was great to be back in Berkeley because there were shows, there was Crimshine, they were our guys. You know, I had this access point to actually, you know, being kind of one of the more of the creators and the observers. Um, and, you know, we were all on acid. There was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, so pretty soon it just it kind of naturally happened, I think, is is so often the case that you just kind of form a band because that's that's what people are up to. Mm-hmm. And were there other bands kind of like in that Crimshrine orbit before you guys formed that were part of that early scene for you guys? Um, yeah, in the Bay Area at that time, our homies were this band, um, Soup. Um, and Soup, the guys in Soup later went on to form uh, Sam I Am. Oh yeah. Also, one of them was in um, Sweet Baby, uh, Sweet Baby Jesus, who later mm-hmm. became called Sweet Baby. Anyway, and so they were kind of like they were the other Crim Shrine, you know. They mm-hmm. they were also neighborhood guys from Albany, and uh, who we knew from from way back. And they would play around and like Crim Shrine. No one really cared about them, but we love them. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like these bands were not big draws. No one gave a shit. Like sort of all the older, cooler, tougher punks. Didn't, weren't really trying to hear it, but we loved it and uh, we thought they were great. And like, were Neurosis like? Did you guys play with Neurosis at this point? Were they were they going? Uh, well, yeah, totally. We would go see Neurosis, and Neurosis were friends. You know, mm-hmm. Neurosis—they're just such great people. Neurosis and Christ on Parade. And I don't mean to like, you know, talk about how great my bros are, but they—they yeah. were—they were yeah. such nice, like nice, ethical, kind. Um, people, they always have been, they still are. Um, yes, so, so we would see, we would see them and totally unpretentious, you know what mm-hmm, I mean? And mm-hmm. that back then that was kind of saying something because a lot of people had it sort of like some kind of tough guy thing going, but anyway, so they were great and, uh, we would see them around, but we didn't really start playing shows with them until Gilman street opened, And that's what kind of brought every, everybody together. Although actually I think Crimshrine probably played a show or two with them. Because they were part of that, there's like that whole kind of warehouse scene, that alchemy record scene that's going at the same time too, right? Just before, I guess, the Gilman yeah. gets going? Yeah, so they, um, uh, Neurosis and Christ on Parade lived in a warehouse called New Method, which would have a lot of pretty epic shows, you know, um, Crucifix played there, some other stuff. Uh, and Alchemy Records started, um, and so that was that was a thing. Crimshine wasn't so much a part of it. Crimshine was yeah. just trying to get it together to like play your aunt's garage without her. <laughs> <Yeah>. going- <laughs> Crimshine, Crimshine would like try to have a gig in a in a laundromat. That's that's what they were up to. <laughs> yeah, 
It's amazing to think, though, that that new method you've got, like, no effects, the Melvins, Neurosis, and Christ on Parade all existing in, like, the same warehouse at one point. Yeah. Oh, really? I didn't know that the Melvins and no effects lived there. I, I knew it was just a constant, you know, revolving door of people and bands and artists. It was, it was a pretty, it was a very dark um, scene and there was a lot of drugs and a fair amount of mental illness and kind mm-hmm. of real outsiders, but it was also incredibly creative. Mm-hmm. So you, the scene that you guys kind of formed, where was it lo- kind of situated before it was situated the Gilman? Like, was it just anywhere that you guys could kind of find uh, a play? Well, yeah. So me and Jeff Ott and Aaron and a couple other people would basically wander around Berkeley on acid. <laughs> <laughs> trying to get into some shit, you know, and <laughs> like we're really into graffiti mm-hmm. and uh, not even like hip hop type, type graffiti, just like writing on walls. <laughs> <laughs> so. Anyway, yeah, it was just we just wandered around. We didn't really have a scene. That that was the whole thing. That's what to me was <laughs> was so cool about it is just this bunch of weirdos that that no one really cared about. And of course, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to like hype obscurity or anything like that, but it was kind of fun and pure mm-hmm. because there's this band and we go around doing goofy shit like kids and it was fun. Um and it didn't really become a thing that people knew about until um until Gilman opened. I mean, of course, a few people know about knew about the man and people liked it, but it wasn't, it was sort of like, um, you know, more high school level mm-hmm. with the sound that you guys had. Cause like, even on those early demos, you know, it's very clear which, which way you guys are going sonically. Was that like a conversation that happened or is that just like you guys show up to practice and, and operation Ivy comes out? Well, it, it's funny that you asked that. <laughs> Because I remember, you know how kids are, or at least I was, you get some idea in your head and that's just the new thing, you know, yeah. like, and it's funny because kids in a way are so flexible and open-minded, but they can also be really dogmatic. And at some point me and Aaron decided that we were really into <laughs> uh, mid-tempo melodic punk, you know what I mean? <laughs> so we liked, you know, the dam and the clash <laughs> and social distortion, kind, maybe, you know, <laughs> We're a little skeptical of them because they're a little too uh, too L.A. rock or something. But uh, and by the way, I love social distortion. Not nothing against them. But anyway, so we love these mid tempo bands, stiff little fingers, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And we and Crimshine was totally patterned after that vibe. Like Aaron loved the adverts and um, so on. And so I kind of tried to, you know, make Op Ivy like that. But the thing is. Tim is such a creative force. He just, he's just this endless fountain of ideas. I mean, he still writes a million songs a week. Mm-hmm. And so you just kind of like have to get on that horse and see where it goes. And he just, you know, he started writing faster stuff. And he, you know, one day I think I did have a hand in, in pushing him to go with the ska because he played some ska shit. And I was like, holy shit, you can actually play that shit, you know? Yeah. And it sounded good and it sounded real. Um, so yeah, we did those, those songs too, but it, it was never a conscious decision. It was just like, he would play stuff, you know, he's massively talented and it would sound good. And I would kind of be like, yeah, let's do something with that one. It's funny. Cause you mentioned Devo and like, it's, it's hard to like imagine or conceive of a world without Devo inventing that sound for bands to kind of feed off of. 
you know, or to, or like not, not even like copy, but just to like react to and kind of reinterpret. And I think by the same way, I can't imagine, you know, what punk would sound like post operation Ivy without operation Ivy. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, speaking from, I don't really have a third person perspective on it, Yeah. but you know, I'm sure there's some truth to that. And for me, it's just so bizarre because as I always say, and, and I'm not, there's no bullshit in this. I, for me, we were just doing this kind of goofy little thing and it, it started working creatively that the stuff came together, you know, where it sounded the way we wanted it to. And then everything else is just something that happened afterwards. I mean, we weren't even, people liked us and we were doing well, but you know, back then punk bands only, there was a very low ceiling Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, we only started to kind of push against that ceiling at the very end of our trajectory. Mm Mm-hmm. Sorry, go on. We sold out, you know, the second year we played, we sold out local clubs. And I was like, oh, this is kind of a thing. But I just, I had no consciousness of of that. And I don't know, you know, it's not that I was pure. It's, I I think I was just kind of naive. Like I didn't, all I thought about was like making cool punk music. I just didn't care about, um, you know, how big or little something was. It just didn't matter. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of when that stuff started happening, I didn't even realize it until a year after the band broke up mm-hmm. that so it was like a thing, you know? Yeah. So you never wanted to be like, like, I guess, Husker Du, you said earlier, like you never wanted to be like that or, or, or even like, I guess, seven seconds at this point was kind of going for more, you know, like a full time kind of band thing. Like that wasn't something you ever kind of thought was in the cards or anything. Uh, well, for me, all I wanted to do was make really good music. That's it. Yeah. That was just it for me. And, you know, I'm not claiming to be like super pure or anything. Later, I became more ambitious and I even did some things where I was hoping it would get big, you know, um, because you get a little older and you realize you have to make dollars in the world and that's <laughs> yeah. part of life. But uh, at that time, I was just, you know, maybe because I was just young and naive, the only thing I cared about was this almost like, um, you know, almost spiritual view of punk as this this thing that was incredibly truthful in a, a very corrupt world. And that, <laughs> I know it sounds ridiculous, but that was like the main, that was the object of life, is yeah. to make good punk stuff. Yeah, and, no. that, <laughs> and so there was nothing really beyond that. And it's not because I was like this, you know, this noble hearted soul. It just never occurred to me because all I did was listen to records, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and yeah, like I can only imagine also what it would be like conceiving of success, right? Because it, when, you know, like I guess you're saying you didn't, you know, notice it till a year after the band broke up. But like I've I've got the bootleg videos of, of those Gilman shows where it's like a sold out Gilman. Like that must have been a lot to take in as a young person. Well, for me, the thing is, the thing I fixated on in those experiences was not so much the size of the crowd, but the intensity of the um you know the show mm-hmm. so there were these kind of um you know really uh I, I don't know how to explain it i mean everybody's been been to good shows it's just you have this feeling of kind of like not even um you know like we would drag the audience on the stage and the whole thing was sort of to break, have this euphoric group experience so I didn't think like, oh, we're getting big. I thought just like, oh, that was fun. And then afterwards I would feel weird and drained and I would get drunk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the come down, right? Like as lead singers, it's like amazing what you have to emotionally go through. 
you know, like the highest of highs, and then you have to come crashing down after the show. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And there's there's a way that um, you sort of have to almost like go into a trance, mm-hmm. uh, especially at punk shows. It's almost like a, um, you know, you have to leave your body in a way. And, and afterwards, yeah, there's this big feeling of, of sort of, kind of a darker feeling um you know it's not like it's not the end of the world that you could have a lot worse problems than that but it's there was definitely a crash after after some of the gigs and you know i I could honestly talk to you jesse forever and i've kept you for a very long time um uh but will you come back in some point and do a part two uh yeah anytime this has been like an amazing experience but i just kind of want to you know like you mentioned the intensity of the show and like, and you also like, you know, by the time that Gilman scene comes together, you guys are on some pretty incredible bills. You know, like we talked about that Eastern Front way back when at the beginning. Um, was there ever like a level of competition, like to go out there and like, you know, not outdo the other band, but just kind of keep that level of intensity or exceed that intensity of like a Unipride or, or like a Crimshrine or or a Neurosis. Um, not exactly, but like, I remember the first time we played with Fugazi, we played with them three or four times and, you know, Ian was just, uh, Ian was just a hero. There's no other way to put it. I fucking love that guy and everything he did. So we definitely turned that motherfucker out that night, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and we put on a show. It was at, uh, the rocket club in, in Rhode Island. Or Providence, Rhode Island? Yeah, I think Rhode Island. Anyway, and it was great, but it wasn't competitive mm-hmm. because uh, we were opening for them and we fucking turned it out. And then they did the same thing and they were amazing and they did all their, you know, Ian at that time. Later they became a little bit more settled down, but he used to like just dive into the drums and they were fucking crazy. It was great. Yeah. So it was, it was mostly just fun. Um, I remember one time we, I think we played with SNFU and they, um, your guys yep. and you know, cheap pig is just, he's one of the best performers of all time. He was fucking amazing. So I definitely, you know, would want to like, uh, put it on a show when he was around or anyone like that was around, but yeah, it wasn't so much, it, it really wasn't competitive at all. It was, uh, it was kind of like more of just a fun thing. And uh, there was some playful competition in the beginning, um, you know, but it, none of it was ever serious. What about like a, a band like, um, like, sorry, where did you see sort of Operation Ivy fitting in and sort of that national kind of uh, scene? You know, you mentioned playing with Fugazi and you're, you're also, you know, at the same time playing with uh, you know, like a, a wide range of different types of bands. And because it, it, it seems like there wouldn't be sort of a natural scene for you guys to fit in. It's almost like you help set that up uh well actually yeah now that you mention it so there was this thing where we went on tour and it was in kind of the dog days of hardcore mm-hmm. uh, when hardcore was just getting really generic and and pretty bad for the. i mean there was still some great bands but it was just a lot of bands doing the same thing and a lot of kind of really stale macho shit you know what i mean yeah, yeah. uh it wasn't even like fresh exciting tough guy shit like agnostic front it was like the the 15th you know copy of that and so we would sometimes play and people would just be sitting there with their arms crossed because we looked you know gay in the the 80s parlance i'm not saying that in a homophobic way but people people would see people like us and they would be like oh who are these you know uh people and and 
Um, so at that point, we would kind of have a chip on our shoulder, or at least I would, mm-hmm. and we would go super hard against the resistance. But the thing is, our vibe was so happy that a lot of times we would get people laughing and we would make them dance and kind of win them over. So, you know, it wasn't like a fuck you thing. It was like, we don't give a shit. We're going to do our thing. And then hopefully win you over. And most of the time it worked. Well, this, as I say, Jesse, this has been one of the most incredible conversations I've gotten to have since starting this podcast. And, uh, yeah, I never thought I'd get to talk to you about car sickness. That is one thing I can safely say. Well, yeah, and I, I can send you a an online link of um, all of the um, – there's a, there's this guy who archives all the Pittsburgh stuff, so I'll send that to you. He has all that old, all the old demos, all that crazy oh, stuff. Oh, I'd love to hear that stuff. Absolutely. I, I'm a like, – like there's, there's, there's this weird 7-inch I have that Hank – something i can't even find it online but it's one of the one of my favorite power pop records ever and it's like like you said like there's just so much pittsburgh stuff that's you know kind of forgotten at this point yeah the rave ups that's another one yeah and and also uh the bats i think it's like the bats yeah totally there was a lot of stuff there's actually this really incredible movie about the early pittsburgh scene which is a kind of like um it's a documentary with acting in it you know what i mean okay so it's made by some art students at CMU or something. And it covers a lot of those old bands and a lot of bands that most people haven't even heard of. And one thing that was amazing about Pittsburgh in the early, early eighties, they were really, the scene was, well, I guess like so many scenes, it was so fucking queer, mm-hmm. you know, like there was a band that was called like, like Jennifer and the Dykes or something, you know, and they were just, they were so out gay. And like so many of the bands were like that. And back then it wasn't a self-conscious thing. It wasn't like, uh, Hey, we're, we're doing this queer thing. It's just half of them were gay. Mm -hmm. And so they would do like, you know, they would include that in their music. And it's just, it's funny because, you know, a lot of people think that that type of approach is so new and so revelational, but actually a lot of these bands in SF and LA all over the place were just super queer in the, um, you know, even in the late seventies before the eighties. Oh yeah. Like the mumps in New York with Lance loud. Yeah, totally. And all the, if you look at old photos of the SF scene, there's just, everybody's gay. Yeah. Pink section. Was that one of the, 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 I remember there's like a early, early San Francisco band that I have a 45 by that's just killer. But yeah, totally. Yeah, they're kind of like Dadaist, you know, proto riot girl insanity. They're, they're pretty good. I don't, I don't know much about them, but yeah, no, an amazing history of, uh, of, of queer culture and queer punk. But I guess, like you said, that kind of like hyper masculine, ultra macho and ultimately kind of homophobic, hardcore scene you keep hearing about time and time again kind of chase a lot of that away well okay actually i'm glad you said that before we sign off if i could just talk about that yeah so there is this this narrative and kind of revisionist idea that there's this wonderful kind of queer utopia and then the mean sort of you know like macho white guys showed up and and chased everybody away so okay that i mean i'm sure there's some truth to that i'm sure certainly you know, a lot of the people that would have been at a mutants show would not be feel comfortable at a fuck up show. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. But the thing is, there was still a lot 
of, there was still queer people. There was still a lot of women and the women weren't like, Oh, we're, we're so scared and persecuted. You know, look at all these boys, you know, like they were a huge part of it. So yes, there was sexism. Yes. There was like macho violent stuff, but the narrative that it was like this, this boys club where nobody else was allowed and everybody else, you know, was too scared to make a peep is just false. And is part of a kind of um, corrective historical revision, which I think is well-intentioned, but just is not completely true. Like, I just I just remember when I was a kid, even at those Eastern Front shows, there were so many, like, the women were, were so fucking cool, and they were just a huge, huge part of it. So, yes, that's true, but it certainly isn't the whole story. And the only reason I say that is just because you hear that that bandied about so much and it's, it's not completely true. No, you're right. And I think, and I don't mean to undercut. Yeah. Obviously the, the works and the efforts and the involvement of queer people and, and women post kind of hardcore and involved in hardcore, obviously, but you know, like you don't see these bands that you're like talking about that you see in the first wave post kind of the codification of punk and hardcore until kind of like the nineties and the late eighties where you have like a lot of these sorts of bands emerge and a lot of these new scenes kind of, or not new scenes, but like scenes reemerge, like the zine scene coming out of Toronto and, and fifth column and stuff like that. And then ultimately the stuff that becomes riot girl. But you know, like there was this period where like you were saying on the road, you were running into certain bands that were just kind of like doing the same thing over and over again and, and hammering home a certain hyper kind of tough guy kind of style. Yes, that's true. There were, there was a huge dry period. And, and by the way, the only reason I mention this is not to counter what you're saying or like to argue. Yeah, no, absolutely. But just because it's this thing that's kind of going around and Mm -hmm. sometimes, and people always, always, anytime academics talk about punk, they always manage to get it wrong one way or the other. And this is sort of like the new way that they're getting it wrong with this certain kind of ultra, um, you know, I don't know what the word is, uh, sort of like inclusive, there's only inclusive and non-inclusive, you know, polarization, which isn't the whole story. But yes, of course, there was, there was periods where it was definitely just kind of boring, macho bullshit. But a lot of the time, a lot of the periods where it's supposed to have been like that, really, it wasn't like that. Well, and not to put the blame, but I think the first place I heard it was from former guest John Doe on the History of Rock and Roll Time Life special series that they made in the late 90s. I remember in the punk episode him saying that as a quote. So, we, well, we know. yeah, and you know <laughs> the thing is, the LA is such a weird little test tube. Of, you know, like yeah. that's yeah. LA is its own world. LA had as many bands as the rest of the country, probably. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So, uh, but then it was, dies too in LA in a big way, right? Like it's it's funny when you think about LA in the late '80s and stuff. Like you have into the early nineties, you got like L seven and bad religion and, and like, you know, like a celebrity skin, but like, it's amazing how much of that huge scene just disappears almost in the mid eighties. Uh, yeah, totally. And by the way, so John Doe is, it's just funny because these, these perspectives are, it's like the, the five people grasping the elephant, you know, like, <laughs> so he's right. I'm sure he's right. I'm sure he saw the venues he went to the, he saw the crowds change. But at the same time, time, all through the early 80s, there were so many, like, you know, um, punk bands with women in them and strong female personalities uh, in the punk scene. You know, the bags, just like Mm -hmm. so many examples. So, again, 
yes, it's true, but it's not the whole story. And I think it's a mistake when people want to assign only one narrative to anything involving punk because it's it's always a collection of narratives. It's always like a collection of definitions. And that's why it's so hard to pin down, you know? Jesse, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, anytime I can get you back on the phone for a part two, I'd love to do that because I'd love talking about mid-tempo punk and and all this stuff. This has been a oh, lot yeah. of fun. We could get into it. We could get into the records too. Dude, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, like we barely scratched the surface. There's like a trillion more questions I have to ask you, but uh, this is this has been why I do this show. Thank you so much for coming on. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, Jesse, for coming on the show. And you heard it right there. He will be back for a part two and probably a part three and a four, I hope, in the future. That was so much fun. You know, I knew as soon as I remembered that he did the art for Unipride, that this was going to go some interesting places. I had no idea we were going to spend so much time in Pittsburgh. What, what a wonderful surprise to get a chance to talk about, you know, Pittsburgh, a scene that we don't get to talk about all too often on this show. And we will get into it a lot more, I'm sure, on footnotes. Speaking of getting into it, next week on the show, I get a chance to get into it with one of my all-time favorite Canadian songwriters. Tom Anselemi is someone who played in the band Slow, uh, played in the Copyright, played in, played in some other bands as well, but my God, those two Slow records are two of the great, great Canadian records of all time. And Tom and I have a really, really awesome conversation. There's, uh, you know, a real kind of disconnect in the way each of us view punk rock and its importance, but we do have a lot in common. It's a fun, fun conversation. That one is not to be missed. And that is next week on the show. Thank you everyone for listening. And remember, anyone can do this shit. Go out there and make your own culture. And I will see you next week. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.